You know, when a person is, is fearless and bold, um, it's really, um, it's engaging. It, it, it draws us to want to be like them, to want to follow them. I mean, it's a great example when someone can stand so strong in the face of such adversity. One such example is John Patton. Many of you have heard the name before. He a, was a missionary in the mid-19th century to Vanuatu. It was an island in the um, South Pacific. And uh, he was going into an area that um, about 19 years before, uh, two men had gone to do missions work and um, had gotten off the boat and began to move towards the people they were ministering to and uh, were roundly uh, killed and then eaten in front of the people that were still on the boat. And so he was going to this area to begin preaching the gospel. And one of the elders of his church uh, had warned him and said to him, they'll eat you. And here's his response to the man. Uh, Mr. Dixon was his name. He says, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They are to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's a boldness. That's a serious boldness that, that I think the gospel writer Matthew is trying to create in the disciples, those who are following Jesus Christ. You, you've seen, Matthew probably is the, is the most clearly laid out gospel for us. In terms of Matthew trying to draw us, the disciples of Christ, to really understand Jesus Christ. You find in the first four chapters, Matthew is holding up Jesus. Here is the king from God. You know, if you read it, you'll see that repeated phrase that it's in fulfillment of the scriptures, in fulfillment of the scriptures, that Matthew wants us to understand Jesus is really the one from God. There is no other. There was no one before, there's no one after. He's the king from God coming to bring a kingdom, and he's inviting people. You see it when he says he's from, from the line of Abraham, born of a virgin. You see the kings from the east come to worship him. You see Herod try to persecute him. And then you see Jesus get baptized as he begins his ministry. And then he announces the kingdom is here, and, and, and he calls people into it. So the first four chapters, very clearly, Matthew is saying, here's the king, he's bringing a kingdom. You want to follow him. You want to be his follower. But this king then begins in chapters 5, 6, and 7 to begin to lay out the teaching of the kingdom. Remember the Beatitudes we studied? Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor, blessed are the pure, blessed are those who get persecuted. He speaks about this is the life of the kingdom. Here's the etiquette of the kingdom. Remember how he said, you've heard it say, but I say to you, kings get to do that. Kings get to say, this is now what you need to do. Kings get to lay down the law. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives this new understanding for us that if we're going to follow the king, here's how to do it. Then in 8 and 9, you see that three cycle of three miracles each time showing the glory of the kingdom, not only the reality of the kingdom. You know it's here because dead people are coming to life and lepers are being cleansed and, and the demonized are being freed. So, wow, this is unbelievable. I can come next week. Hey, I'm starting a kingdom. Well, you'll laugh at me. 
But if dead people start rising from the dead, then you start thinking differently. So it's the power of the kingdom, but it's also the nature of the kingdom. What a beautiful kingdom where women are healed, women that were looked down upon, children that were ignored, the lepers that weren't touched, Jesus touches them. I mean, it's a beautiful kingdom. It's not just a powerful kingdom, but it's a gentle and kind and sweet kingdom. So that's what you have in the first nine chapters of Matthew. And then chapter 10, which we've been looking at for three weeks, there's this big shift. The disciples that have been following him, he now calls apostles. And remember, it's kind of the handing of the baton. He says, now you go into the world, you preach what I've been preaching, and you do the miracles that I've been doing. So now the disciples or apostles are going to be calling disciples to follow this Jesus that we've been studying in the first nine chapters. And we saw last week how these apostles calling disciples, he says, listen, you're going to face some trouble. You're going to face some persecution. You're going to face some real, you're going to face some real hardship. Well, today he's going to continue that same line of thought. There's just 24 and 25, those two verses. He's going to remind us of the nature of trial and conflict that the disciple will face. But it really makes a sweet swing in 26 to 33. Because what Jesus does for us, and it's so kind of him, he lays out for us promises, assurances, certainties that we can anchor ourselves to that cause the threat of persecution to just melt, to make men and women like John Patton. Because when you believe the promises, you hear the promises. And that's what I've been praying for. I've been praying for myself. Can I really believe what he's telling me here? Because if I really believe it, if I really believe that God exists in glory and these are truths that I can rest upon, then it changes the whole scope of discipleship. And he lays out four things for us that are profound. So he's, we're going to look at the cost, again, the trials, the nature of discipleship, and then these promises that will help us walk in it. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10. We'll read 24 through 33. And this is really about the hope that you have for this fearlessness, really, in being a disciple. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the first thing we see in 24 and 25, passage breaks up in these two little pieces, 24 and 25, you kind of see the nature of discipleship having some hardship associated with some conflict. But before he does, he explains, he reminds us of what does it mean to be a disciple? Look in 24 when he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. So you kind of see a sweet little definition of discipleship here in the picture of the relationship between the disciple and the teacher and the servant, his master. That it's enough, he says, to be like him. That's what discipleship is. It's becoming like Jesus Christ. Nobody thought that Jesus was saying, you'll be equal to me. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's plenty for you to be like the master, to imitate him, to grow in likeness to him. Now, this, of course, doesn't come with an event or a decision you make. Discipleship is a lifelong pattern of growth and change. It's ongoing. It's not always consistent, but it's always continuous. But discipleship is us becoming like him in character. We become similar to him. We begin to resemble him. Our relationships and our lives begin to take on that aroma of Christ. And this life of discipleship, for the Christian that is, will continue on until you die. In fact, the Puritans used to say death is the last step of discipleship. You need to die to finish being a disciple. We kind of see this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So, so discipleship is you and I becoming like him in character, but <clears throat> it's also becoming like him in, co- in uh, conflict. Look at 25. So he says to be like him, it's enough to be like him. But then what's it mean to be like him? Well, look at 25. If they call the master of the house Belzebul, then how much more will they malign those of his household? I mean, that's the question Jesus leaves before us. I mean, do you expect better treatment? If the one who has come from heaven full of grace and truth, if he's come to die for our sins, to draw us to the Father, if he's come to do all this for us, and we call him Beelzebul, then what treatment are you going to have? I mean, Jesus came. He, he cleansed the leper. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. He raised the paralytic. He raised the dead. He freed the demonized. He fed thousands. He preached to the masses. And if we call him Beelzebub, do we expect different treatment? I mean, will, will we all not face a degree of persecution, ridicule, and hardship? Do you see how these two go together? Becoming like him in character brings about the conflict that we're going to have. That if you begin to grow more and more like Christ, both in the words that you share and the life that you live, you will run into conflict. Paul saw this as inseparable inseparable in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I pray that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. We're all about that. Give me some power. But then listen, he says, and may I share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. They go together. The life of the disciple is this ongoing, growing to be conformed to him, but that leads us into conflict. So when you look at your life, when you look at your personal life of discipleship, does this paradox, is it evidenced in your life? Do you think this kind of discipleship is just for maybe the super saint that really doesn't understand or or that's kind of above you in a different land? I mean, do you see this as kind of a higher echelon of Christianity that missionaries and and maybe church leaders live in, and this is not for you? When you look at your life, do you see a growing resemblance to him? I mean, take a look at your marriage. If you're married here, 
I mean, do you notice in your marriage a growing likeness to Christ? The way you handle one another, the forgiveness that you give, the sacrifice that you're willing to embrace, uh, the repentance that you seek. I mean, do you, do you tend to see this in your marriage? Or if you're single, Jesus was single. He had a a beautiful relationship with these disciples. Do you see this in your life, this idea of sacrifice and service and love? When you look at the existing relationships, or even in the workplace, when you work, do you work with integrity? Do you work with diligence and satisfaction and gratitude? Are you seeing more of Christ? In other words, is your behavior beginning to reflect more and more of Christ? I don't want you just to look at last week. Last week could have been a disaster for you. Look at the last 50 weeks. Look at the last two years. Has there been an incremental move towards growing Christ-likeness? Because that is what the life of discipleship is. It's you and I resembling him more and more. And that's meted out in the relationships that we have. But how about in terms of conflict? When you look at this passage and you say, well, I would consider myself a disciple. Then I would say, have you faced a degree of conflict? Have you been ridiculed? Have you, have you been mocked for what you say and believe about Christ? I mean, most Christians who have walked out discipleship in somewhat of an open manner, you know you've faced, even from family, or, or if you meet somebody and you say, you talk about going to church, oh, you're one of those. Yeah, I, I guess I am. I mean, if going to church is one of those, whatever those is. Or if you, you bring up the scriptures, ah, you believe the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I actually do. I really believe it strongly. I mean, you have those expressions thrown to you, the ridicule. Any new Christian that begins to live differently, the family starts saying, so why are you going to church all the time? What's this about all this Jesus stuff? You know, that's a low-level ridicule, persecution. It's not a big deal, but it's the beginning. It's the birth pangs. I want you to know that that is commensurate with being a disciple. In fact, I would say this to you. It confirms that you're a disciple. Facing persecution, conflict, and hardship, even at a low level in Western culture, it confirms. If you never have any conflict, what does that confirm? But, But it confirms it and reveals the reality of the kingdom. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's a really important statement. If the world loves you, it would, excuse me, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world will hate you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So there's going to be a clear dichotomy between the world and the Christian. And so that dichotomy is going to create conflict. In fact, J.C. Rowell said this, if you leave the world alone, it'll probably leave you alone. But if you try to do spiritual good to the world, you'll face the conflict that the, that the Lord faced. So that's kind of the issue here. Just in 24 and 25, to be a disciple just means to grow in resemblance to him. I'm not worried about what you did last week. Let's look at the last year, the last two years. Have you seen a growing resemblance to Christ? And has that kicked up any sort of dust in the relationships that you have? That's what discipleship's about. Now, when you read a passage like this, you're led to, well, if I, I, want, to be, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, 
But this discipleship means that I've got to become like him, which is going to bring kind of a firestorm of activity. And, and we, begin to, we begin to think fear might be warranted. When you look at 16 to 25 in this chapter about what kind of persecution, and you hear you're dragged before courts and you're flogged and you're, even some of you will die, you begin to think, I'm not sure that it isn't wise to think I ought to fear. But then we come to the passage and Jesus says three times, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. It's amazing how Jesus wants to get important points when he repeats it. You know, chapter 6, he says, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear about what you're going to wear, eat, and drink. So the material stuff, I'll take care of. Don't fear about being a disciple. Now, this is when we kind of turn to the promises here. And this is where I, I want to go slowly through these. I want to treat them like Austrian chocolate. So Austrians, Austrians make great, great, great chocolate. Now, we tended to eat them rather fast, by the handful, as quick and as much as you can get in your mouth. I want to look at these very slowly, because here there are four promises that I want you to kind of savor the sweetness of them, because these are the fuel for us to have the discipleship that does not fear conflict, that creates the John Pattons of this world. I want you to think about these. Promises are good things. Here's what Charles Spurgeon wrote about promises. He says, God's promises are never meant to be thrown aside as waste paper. He intended that they should be used. God's gold is not miser's gold, but it's minted to be traded with. Nothing pleases our Lord better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, as you have said, we glorify God when we plead his promises. So we want to bring them up, we want to ask for them, we want to rest on them. So these promises he's going to give to us, these assurances that he's going to give to us as to why we don't have to fear. So you have in 24 and 25, this is what discipleship is, to resemble Christ, which will bring conflict. But here's why you can face conflict without fear. Look with me at the first reason in verse 26. In 26, he reminds us that God will vindicate. Jesus assures us that God will vindicate the gospel in our lives. Look, it says, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What he's saying is, he's speaking to the disciples, and if you remember, the secrets of the kingdom were given to the disciples. So that this, in 26, when he says, nothing is covered or hidden, he's speaking about the secrets of the kingdom. You have the secrets of the kingdom. The Christian knows the reality of God. He knows the uniqueness of Christ. He knows repentance is needed to be reconciled to God. These secrets, as you declare them, you'll be ridiculed, and you'll be mocked, and you'll be ignored, You'll be shunned. You'll be marginalized. He goes, don't worry, because in the end, it will all be vindicated as true. All the things that we teach, that the world rejects, the depravity of man, the unique saving work of Jesus Christ alone, the unassailable holiness of God, the need for repentance, the reality of hell, those things that God has communicated to us who believe them in his word, People will mock and reject and roundly deny them. And he's saying, don't worry. Don't worry. There's going to be a day coming when it is just flashed across the sky for all to see. There will be a massive indication of all of the truth that we proclaim now. And that's why he says in 27, he says, listen, what I tell you in the dark or what I've given to you in secret, say in the light. And what I whisper to you because it's given to you, 
proclaim it on the housetops. That if you're a Christian here and you know these things, you know them because God has revealed them to you. And so the disciple wants to shout them, even though we face the rejection or the ridicule or the mocking. Because there's coming a day when it will all be vindicated as true and right. And I'll tell you, one minute of that vindication will make all of the mocking and ridicule seem as nothing to you. So you don't need to fear family and friends or even acquaintances that think you're a bit off, think you're a bit toe-headed, maybe narrow-minded. What's laughed at and what's mocked at will be reversed. They don't have the last word. Why do you fear what men think about you? It is not the last word. God has the last word. And God's last word is, this is true. This is right. J.C. Rowell, again, this great British uh, pastor in the 19th century, said this. He said, the purity of your intentions, the wisdom of your labors, the rightness of your cause shall at length be made manifest to all the world. Let us work steadily, quietly. Men may not understand us and may vehemently oppose us, but the day of judgment draws near. We shall be righted at last. There's going to be a reconciliation, a vindication, a confirmation. You need to think about this. I need to think about this day. So that the approval of men seems insignificant compared to that divine, that final exposing of all truth. You know, when Rachel was at school and college, she took a class on the Holocaust. And the Holocaust, the teacher, um, in kind of explaining the narrative of the Holocaust and really the origins of it, uh, rooted a lot of it in Christianity. Uh, Christianity was at fault. And, of course, we had many, many conversations over uh, how to respond to some of the false assertions of this professor. And, boy, they had a dialogue all semester long. We had a dialogue all semester long. In the end, uh, don't know how convinced the professor was of Rachel's position, but I would say this. She came up to her and said, you have explained well the position, and actually gave her a measure a vindication for her position. Now, that wasn't winning the day, but it was a, it was a foretaste. It was a snapshot of what's going to happen when every knee will bow and every tongue confess above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's going to be that day. And that day is to fuel us to not worry about the fear of man today. Secondly, look at the promise in 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is assuring us that the power and the wrath of God is the thing to fear, not the fear of men. Why? Well, the presumption is that some will die. But that's all they can do. They they can only kill you. Isn't it funny? Jesus says these things that just stick in you. And it's like, that's all they can do. They can only kill you. It's a temporal risk, no question about it. But that's all they can do. And Jesus is saying, don't fear. If you want to fear something, fear God. I mean, put all your fear in the wrath of God, who can kill both the body and the soul. Only only God has that eternal sovereign power over life, death, and all of eternity. In fact, notice what he says. He says, rather fear the one who can kill the body and soul in hell. The word for hell is actually the word Gehenna. It was an area outside Jerusalem where they would burn the trash. It used to be a place where 
they would sacrifice their children to Moloch. So it was, a, it was just a, a horrible place to the Jew. And so they made it, naturally, a dump pit, and they would burn their trash. Now, there's no end to the trash that we produce, and so there's no end to the fire. And so it became a picture of this eternal torment that the unrighteous, the unrepentant, unrepentant and the ungodly will face. Those who have not chosen to follow Christ. It's a picture of that eternal torment. And he's saying, fear the one who controls that place. Fear that one. See, a right fear of God displaces fear of man. Don't fear the wrath of man. Fear the wrath of God. And this, this he is given to Jesus. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, we read, John sees Jesus and he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is now sovereign over all things. We don't need to fear men. We need to fear God. Now, I don't want to create the fear of God's wrath in the heart of the believer here. I'm just trying to give you a proportion to not fear man. I do want to put the fear of God in the heart of the non-Christian here because he's the one you are called to fear. I'm just trying to, for the Christian, I'm trying to give a proportion. Let me give you an example. And I shared this, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, but I, I remember seeing this, um, this newscast regarding some flooding in the Southwest that occurred around 2001. And, uh, and the, the, this particular rivers had overflown the banks, and uh, it was just beginning to swallow up large swaths of land. And, uh, and so this, um, this weather helicopter was going around and showing just homes consumed, communities, right? But what was interesting was they came by this knoll. You know, as the flood was increasing, the area of land on top of this little hill in Texas was getting smaller and smaller. And when the helicopter went over it, you saw all these animals on this, you know, kind of reducing piece of real estate that was dry. And, and when you saw the animals, they were animals that were normally at odds with one another. So they were like, I don't know if they were dogs or coyotes, but some kind of dingo. And, and then there were, there were smaller animals like rabbits and rodents. And, and you, you, normally they're chasing each other or one's chasing the one, the other's trying to hide. But they're not concerned with each other right now. Why? Because the land is shrinking. They're all about to die. And the flood... The fear of the flood supplanted the fear that they normally had with one another. And that's what I'm trying to do with you, is don't fear man. Fear God. God's the one to fear. So, so clearly the text is showing us this integrity of Jesus that some of us will suffer. There will be, there will be bodily suffering, perhaps loss of, maybe if not bodily, loss of job, loss of position, loss of respect. But don't fear man. You know, we tend to fear those things that we really value. And when what we really value is threatened, then we really begin to fear them. And I think a passage like this kind of exposes some idolatry. If I really love my job, I'm going to be silent on the issue of discipleship because I don't want that threatened. And so Jesus kind of falls by the wayside because my job's so important. Or, or if my neighbor, I really want to impress my neighbor and and I'm going to be a little silent on the Jesus thing because I don't want him, his respect for me is so important that I'm going to value that 
over my relationship with Christ. So be mindful when you see a text like this. Think through, what do you fear losing most? Because you can't lose what's most important to you, and that is a relationship with God. There's nothing that can challenge that. But if there's other things you fear, do you love them too much? I also think in Western culture, we've kind of drunk deeply from this bucket of risk-free living. Like somehow, we're going to try to get to the end of life without suffering. We've got insurances. We've got great advanced medical opportunities. And we think, maybe somehow I can get to the end and not suffer at all. May I just challenge that? May I say that that is not a godly approach to life? I'm not saying look for trouble. Last week we learned, be what? Be shrewd as a serpent, be gentle as a dove. But there is no way you're going to avoid risk. There's going to be temporal risk in this life. But we have one who is greater than that. That's why if you don't have a clear vision of Christ and his power and glory, and you can just hear him holding those keys, I have the keys of death and Hades. But boy, if that doesn't strengthen your back, I don't know what will. So then thirdly, look at the third promise he gives us. And I really love this one. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. You're more valuable than sparrows. Now, a sparrow is, of course, a very small bird. And it was the diet of the poor. So the poor would eat them. But, but they were only eaten as hors d'oeuvres because they're so small. You couldn't make a meal out of them. And you needed two of them to get to a penny. A penny was the lowest value in this denomination. a small little copper coin. And he's saying even the slightest of his creation, the sparrow, he knows when one hits the ground. God is sovereign over the flight of a sparrow. God knows every move of his creation. I love what Alexander McLaren, a Scottish minister, said. He says, God is not just sovereign over everything, but God is sovereign over each thing. There's an individual application of God's sovereignty. And then Jesus turns it to us, and he says, but the hairs of your head are numbered. Now think about that for a minute. Your hairs are numbered, as Grant prayed. He's not just put them there, he's numbered them. Now, there's a lot of hairs on your head, most of you. (laughs) Anytime, you you can't not go to the balding jokes with this. I'm sorry. So a brunette generally has, sorry, a blonde naturally has, generally speaking, has 140,000 hairs. Brunettes, I'm sorry, perhaps it's thicker. They have about 108,000. Redheads, you didn't even crest into six digits. You have less. There's a lot of hairs, and what he's saying here is he's numbered the hairs on your head. So think about it. This is how intimate he is acquainted with you. When you comb your hair, you're losing hair. You don't even know. You don't really even care that much. Maybe some do, less more than others, but most of us, you spend your life combing your hair, and it's being pulled out, and you don't even know. And yet God knows. God is more intimately acquainted with what's going on in your life than you are. You don't need to fear what's going to come across your life. There there is no chance for the Christian. Again, Spurgeon waxes eloquent on this passage. He says, the very hairs of your head are counted and cataloged. 
and to the most minute circumstance, all of your lives are under the arrangement of the Lord of love. Chance is not in our creed. The decree of the eternal watcher rules our destiny and love is seen in every line of that decree. Do you believe that? That your father is that intimately acquainted with you? There's something else here, though. You know, when we look at life and life begins to come at us and it goes sideways, we naturally begin to question God. We perhaps even hold his decisions in judgment. We don't like what he's doing to us. And, and I think what Jesus is driving at here as well is he's showing us a contrast. If we are profoundly ignorant about our own lives on the most insignificant part of our life, how many hairs we have, and yet he knows the intimate details of that, don't you think he's aware of what's coming? Don't you think he's managing the events of our life for our good? Don't you think we can rest in him? Isn't this why he told Abraham, go count the stars? It wasn't just to number his descendants, it's to show him his glory and his power. He says, go ahead and try to count the stars. I mean, God is intimately, he says he's your father. So we don't need to fear because there is no persecution struggle that's going to come into your life apart from him. There is nothing that can harm the Christian that doesn't come through and pass through the will of God. Can you believe this with me? I mean, do, do you believe that God is that intimately concerned and that he loves you this greatly. I think this is, for me, one of the hardest things to really believe, that he loves me. Now, I think he loves me when I live right. And, and there, is, there, is, there is truth to be had that, that an expression of our love for him is our obedience. But often I, I switch it around and I emphasize that my obedience earns his love. Do you know that God loves you? Do you understand that? Because I would say that without understanding the love of God, you're going to find discipleship to be a very, very difficult thing. You're going to find discipleship to be a very, very hard thing. You know, there's a survey done in a seminary class where the teacher, the professor, asked 120 students, said, how many here, seminarians, preparing for ministry, how many here believe that God loves them? Out of 120, the number of hands that went up were two. Two. Preparing for ministry. Many said, well, I know that I should know that he loves me. I know the Bible tells me he loves me. But only two felt that God really loved them. I thought, what if I asked here, who here really believes, really believes that God loves you. I wonder how many of your hands would go up. And I think this is a huge death nail to active discipleship because we're just not sure. And, and, and we, we determine the amount of his love for us based upon the behavior that we've had for the week. That's not Christianity. In Ephesians chapter 1, it's very clear that in the beginning or I should say before the foundations of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless. It says, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And this is through the redemption of Christ, to the praise of his glory, that he has a love for us that he's chosen to bestow on us. And it isn't regulated by your behavior. Your behavior may bring measures of discipline, but that's another sign of love. I don't discipline the neighbor's children. I discipline the ones that are mine, that I love. 
So do you believe that he loves you? If you can be caught up in understanding that, then you will not fear man and you will not fear anything because you will know your heavenly Father who's numbered the hairs on your head. Nothing falls to the ground apart from his will. Everything coming into your life you're going to be able to handle because he loves you. Do you believe that? I want to pray that we do. I want to pray that we do. And ask God to reveal himself more to you if you don't know it, if you don't experience it. Fight for this. Fight to understand his great love for you. Last promise he gives us is found in 32 and 33. And this is kind of a sobering promise. It's coupled with a warning. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Boy, this is a kind of a, a sobering scene here. It's a promise to those of you who are disciples and you're living in an active way. It doesn't mean you have to go to the street corner to acknowledge him. What he means by those who acknowledge me, that you are living in light of his gospel, that when you have opportunities, you're speaking to your hope in the resurrection, and, and you're not being bold and obnoxious and arrogant, but you are being faithful, peace-loving, repentance-seeking, offering forgiveness. You're walking and you're resembling Jesus Christ. That's what he means by acknowledge. And he says, if you acknowledge him, if you acknowledge him, he will acknowledge you. So I want you to understand the scene here. The scene is a courtroom, and God is on the throne, and you're standing before him, Christian, non-Christian. And, and you see him in his cosmic glory <clears throat> and in his sheer perfections of holiness and power. And then you begin to feel this gravitational weight of your sin and your brokenness. And you're now beginning to see how much you need an advocate, a spokesman, who can help you. You've got nothing to bring to this cosmic, glorious power. You've got nothing. You need an advocate. You need a spokesman. And for the one that has spent a life confessing Christ, there's a voice that comes from the right of the throne that says, He is mine. She is mine. Now, why would God hear that voice? Well, we already know why. He's already said to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine the joy and the relief? I've got a spokesman who has satisfied the debt of my sin before this holy God. But the opposite is also true. If you deny him by your life and by your words, he will deny you. I don't want you thinking a denial is like a one-off denial. You know, Judas confessed, but then he denied. Peter denied, then he confessed. So I'm talking about a, I'm talking about a, a habitual pattern of life that you're looking back over your life. Have you acknowledged him in the way that you've lived, in the way that you've spoken about the gospel? Have you denied him in order to save your skin? Well, let's say you have. Let's say you have in the past. You kind of went real silent when people were starting to throw Jesus around like trash. And you kind of got quiet, real quiet, real fast. I'm not even speaking about those one-off denials, a pattern of it. He says he will deny you. This is a frightening thing. So when you look at your discipleship, what do you see? I mean, do you see a lifestyle of acknowledge him 
acknowledging him by your life, by your words? If you do, don't fear death. Don't fear standing before God. He'll confess you. Jesus will come down off the right hand and say, he is mine, she is mine. And it will it'll, it'll all be good. You know, we've got the expression, everything's good. That's when it's true. Everything will be good at that point. But for those of you who have walked in silence, remember the denial of Jesus is not this outward cussing hatred of Jesus. Denial can be just as effective with this continual silence that nobody knows that you have any relationship or allegiance or love for Christ. If that's the case, you need to take stock. This is a warning for you. This is actually my greatest fear for some. That that there is this idea that I'm a disciple because I come here, I read the Bible, and but it's in my own little world. Outside of here, nobody would know anything that you have an allegiance to Christ. This is my greatest fear, is that there might be some among us that are somehow self-deluded in terms of their own position before God. It's, it's frightening to hear that. Jesus in Matthew 7, you know, when the, when the folks come up and they say, hey, we did this, we did this, we did this. And he says, I never knew you, never knew you. What do you think Jesus says about you? Forget for a minute what you say about him. You may have a very orthodox theology. What does he say about you? Will he say, I knew you? I mean, is the allegiance that you have for this one who has died for us, is it profound enough? I mean, if this is a concern for you, then speak with someone in this church. Come forward after the service. I mean, it's a serious issue. He says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. You don't want to figure that out on that day. You want to figure it out on this day. So we have this beautiful passage, 24 and 25. The disciple is the one who grows in resemblance both in character but also conflict. Conflict is our lot in this life. But look at the promises. Hank, lash yourself to the promises. That on the final day, the gospel in your life will be vindicated. That that he has power over both the body and the soul in hell that he's your father, nothing will come to you apart from his perfect will for your life, and that he will acknowledge you as you have been acknowledging him. So let this be kind of a, a, a time of introspection, drawing in a brother or sister to look at your life and say, what do you think about these verses in my life? Maybe you could even open yourself up and say, how could I display my allegiance to Christ in greater fashion. Would you be so bold to do that and allow them to speak to it? I would encourage you to consider that. Let me close in prayer, and then we have a, a, a brief time of prayer after this, and the elders going to close us. But I, my hope is that you'd pray loudly, that we can hear you, and briefly that others can pray, and that you would pray in light of this text. Let me begin and then an elder will close us. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that he has come to be our advocate, to be our savior. Father, give us eyes as a church. Give us these eyes that will penetrate into the next life. That your grace is sufficient today. But help us to long for the full enjoyment of it tomorrow. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.